0: Our series has been unexpected joy, finding joy in unexpected places. Paul wrote this from prison. He wrote this possibly from death row. And today we're gonna talk about unexpected contentment in unexpected circumstances or situations which leads to unexpected joy as Paul talks to us about it in chapter four, verses 10 through 23. How to experience real contentment. Now what is contentment? Well, first of all, what it's not. It's not apathy, laziness, or complacency. Paul was a driven man. Nothing was more untrue about him than those words, apathy, laziness, and complacency. He was a driven man, and yet he said he had learned to be content. It's independent of circumstances. Paul went through many hard things in his life, and yet despite that, he had learned uh, contentment. It comes from within. Maybe you know someone who's got everything going well in their lives, and yet they're restless, they're discontent. And then you know somebody else who has some hard stuff going on in their lives, and yet they have contentment in the, in the middle of that. And so we ask the question, how do I get it? The Bible says that contentment is learned. Uh, life is school, the subject is contentment, and God is the teacher, and sometimes he pulls off pop quizzes. Have you found that true in your life? Uh, this past summer, our family was in uh, Hawaii, and you think if there's ever a place you experience nothing but contentment, it's Hawaii. But my sons and son-in-laws wanted to plan a Gunderson men day out. And I made the mistake of letting them plan it without me finding out what it was. And, and all, all the Gunderson men are young and in good shape, except for one of them. Except for one of them. And so I should have had some clues. They said something about Zodiac boats. And they said something about, that's what the Navy SEALs use. That should have been a red flag for me right there. So we go and we, we sit down. And the guide comes over and starts orienting uh, another group, different group than our group, another group, and we were just listening in. And he gets up there and says, what you are about to be prepared for is the toughest experience you're ever going to have in your life. You're going to hang on from dear life. At the end of the day, your muscles will cry with pain. You will hurt in places you've never hurt before. This is not for the faint of heart. You will be bruised from head to toe. You will barely hang on. If you think this is the booze cruise where you just cruise offshore eating and drinking, this is not that experience. This is hardcore. Hardcore. And I'm sitting there going, man, I'm glad I'm not on that door. <laughs> <laughs> Poor suckers, you know, oh, man. <laughs> Our guide comes over and begins to give the exact same speech to us. And it's a miracle that I'm here today. I, uh, my, my son-in-law's got wind that I was going to tell this story, and they keep texting me all over the weekend. Hey, Dad, tell them about how you almost fell out the boat reaching for potato chips. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, Dad, tell tell them how your hands were bloody at the end of the day from hanging on so tight. And uh, uh, so, anyway, sometimes we get we get those we get those pop we get those pop quizzes uh, sometimes uh, that that come along. So, how are we going to deal with? It? How are we going to learn contentment? First of all, we learn to avoid comparisons. Uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. So what Paul's talking about here is a guy named Epaphroditus, his assistant, has just arrived with a financial gift, very uh, generous financial gift from the church at Philippi to the ministry of Paul to further his evangelistic outreach and his ministry. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learned to be content Whatever the circumstance. Now Paul is primarily using this about his own life. Between the difference between the good times and the hard times. But I think it also can apply to comparing our circumstances to the circumstances of other people. It is so hard to be content when we're always comparing ourselves and our circumstances to other people. It's just hard. I think one of the things that robs more joy than anything else is comparison. Sometimes we're, we're pretty happy with our lives, and we, we have this assignment from God, and, and, and we're, we can be content about it, but the problem is we keep comparing it to other people, and it spoils our ability to be content. We have a job that maybe does supply our needs, at least to a certain degree, and we're happy with that job until we run into somebody that has a better job or a more glamorous or interesting job. Uh, we're, we're happy, okay, we do okay with our income. We don't always like more, but it's enough to meet our needs until we run into somebody that has a, a bigger income than ours. Uh, we, our car is dependable, gets us around, we're okay with it until we see somebody with a nicer car. The one that I really think applies to students, I remember this as a student, is you'll have a test or a paper and you were just sure you blew it. You were just like, oh, I am so dead. And you get the paper back and it's like a B plus. And you were like... Thank you, Lord. Oh, I'm so relieved. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And you're happy until you talk to one of your friends after class and they got an A minus. And all of a sudden, that B plus doesn't seem so great anymore because, uh, because uh, they, they got an A minus on it. And so, it, as soon as we start comparing, we just like lose our joy. We lose our joy. Sometimes we can be discontented by comparing our assignment from God to somebody else and say, oh, you know, God uses them in such a more important way than he than uses me. We talked about this a few weeks ago at the death of Billy Graham and how we said that all of us, you know, kind of feel inferior. Oh, man, how God used Billy Graham and, and he doesn't use us all that much. And and we kind of compared it to Paul and Epaphroditus and Billy Graham and Paul, they're like up here. And then there's us like Epaphroditus that hardly anybody knows anything about. And yet God's word says so clearly that every person is essential in the cause of Christ. We're part of the greatest movement, the biggest movement, the fastest growing movement, the most pervasive, the largest movement in all of world history. We are part of this tremendous movement and Every one of us is essential. The the, the thing doesn't happen as well as it could happen according to God's master plan for the human race down through history if we don't do our part. It's like keys on a computer. Here's a little quiz time. Uh, Anybody tell me what they think the most common letter in the English alphabet, what's used the most? What letters? E, yes. People that play uh, Wheel of Fortune are going to have an advantage in this one, okay? E is, is the most common, okay? Uh, what are, here, here are the four least common. Anyone of you want to guess what the four least common are? Anybody? Okay, okay, I hear some of them out there. Q, J, Z, and X. Each of those are used less than 1% of the time. One final one. What's the least used letter at the beginning of a word? Anybody? X, yes, X, ding, 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 all right. A- X uh, is the, aren't you glad you came to church today? You're saying, you know what? What am I gonna learn that's gonna change my life today? And, and here's, here's the answer. Well, here's the thing. Billy Graham and Paul, they're the letter E. They're used on God's keyboard more than any other one. But I'm telling you, I, I wouldn't want to read a story where all the Q, J, Zs, and Xs aren't in it I get confused in that story. Or maybe we're not Q, J, Z's, or X's, maybe we're something in between, but God couldn't give his message to the world without us. And so my keyboard, it may not be an E, it may be a Z, but by the grace of God I'm gonna hit the Z when God tells me to hit the Z throughout my life. And that's the way God's message is gonna be proclaimed to the world. Everybody is absolutely essential in, in in God's in God's master in God's master plan. Now, three misperceptions about misconceptions about happiness. First of all, I must have what others have to be happy. And just remember, every time you see a commercial, every time you see an advertisement, this is the myth that is being perpetrated. I must have what others have in order to be happy. Number two, I must be liked by everyone. To be happy, uh, this is something that will just rob us of joy. I don't have to be liked by everyone in order to be happy. You know, I've told this so many times, my favorite Aesop tale of a man and his son, and they're walking with their donkey into town, and some people come by and laugh at them and say, Look at that, those idiots that they, one of them could ride that donkey. And so the father puts his son up on the donkey, walks along, and another group comes by and says, look at that, that perfectly healthy father has is, is, uh, got his son, you know, is up on the donkey, and then his son is walking. I've got it reversed, but anyway, they come along in the next group. And somebody says, isn't that terrible, that healthy young man, he's up on the donkey, and, uh, and, and the father's walking, they should be trading places. So finally both of them get on the donkey, just so they avoid criticism, so everybody would like them. And then they come upon an animal rights group, and they say, look at that poor beast of burden, those two perfectly healthy men riding on the back of that donkey. So according to the Aesop fable, what they do is they end up tying together the front hooves and the back hooves of the donkey, putting a pole between, and they carry the donkey into town. And so the point of that story is we look foolish when we try to get everybody uh, to like us. I love this quote by William Penn. He's the man that founded the state of Pennsylvania. He writes, Right is right even if everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong even if everyone is for it. Isn't that a great quote. Right is right even if everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong even if everyone is for it. Here's a, just a powerful quote on people criticizing you by uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I, I love Teddy Roosevelt, but I do have one thing against him. He's responsible for my middle name being Kermit. I'm serious. His fault right right there, because he named his son Kermit, and my grandparents, new immigrants to the United States, loved their country, loved their president, thought the way they could honor him was to give my father, in 1913, the middle name of Teddy Roosevelt's son, Kermit, and my father saw fit to bequeath that upon me as well, and so I am Glenn Kermit Gunderson Jr., so, so here I am criticizing Teddy Roosevelt. That's not going to work in just a minute. He writes, it is not the critic who counts But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Oh my goodness. You don't have to have everybody like you in order to be happy. And then number three, having more will make me happy. And certainly we know that. And as the years go by, we know that more and more. Uh, people that are wealthy, they always say, how much money would be enough? And, and the answer is always $1 that I have right now. You ever get a raise and think, oh, my goodness, that is so much money, I will never need another raise the rest of my life. And, boy, a year or two later, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm just so far behind. Or you ever get something, a shiny new something and boy, as soon as you get it out of the store, a couple of days later, it breaks. And, and, and having more will not make us happy. Uh, Paul warns us about these three myths and misconceptions in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. See, our root problem is comparing myself to others. And let me just r- wrap up this point by saying this. God has a grand adventure for every person in this room. He's got a key on the keyboard for you to punch with all of your heart. And he will give you everything you need to fulfill that adventure. Uh, when I, this is one of my favorite themes. Uh, with our church being Purpose Church, it's one of my, our favorite themes. And after I talked on this the last time a few months ago, uh, somebody slipped me a note that said this, be yourself, everyone else is taken. Be yourself, everyone else is taken. Might as well be yourself, because everyone else is taken. Nobody can beat you at being you. Nobody can beat you at being you. You are unique in the history of the universe. There's only one you with one assignment from God. Punch that key. Go to heaven, take your oikos with you, each one, just be concerned with their own assignment, no need for comparisons. And then number two, learn to adjust to change. He says in verse 12, I know what it is to be a need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I know what it is to be, have plenty or be in need. I know what it is to be well-fed or to be hungry. Here's a hilarious joke you can play on your children on Easter Sunday because Easter Sunday this year, I can't ever remember this happening before, falls on April Fool's Day. So here's some really fun times you can have with your kids. Uh, give them one of these kind of eggs here, <laughs> grape wrapped in. They'll get, they'll get a big kick out of this, I'm telling you. They'll think this is so funny. And they'll be healthier. They'll be healthier at the the same time. And here's another one you can give them. Instead of cake pops, get them um, Brussels sprout pops. Kids are going to love this. Okay. Uh, Here's another one when they open up their eggs in the Easter egg hunt. Here's a blueberry. Here's broccoli. And there's some trash from a candy that used to be there. I promise you that at the Easter egg hunt later on today, we will not have any of these. All right? But this is the way life is. Okay? Sometimes God gives us chocolate in the egg. But sometimes God knows that what we need best is blueberries or broccoli. Or maybe nothing at all. And, and, and so we got to learn how to adjust to change. Sometimes we have a lot. Sometimes we don't have that much. You know, you think of Paul. He says, I've learned what it is to have plenty. And you're like, well, Paul, he was never rich, was he? Oh, he was. See, he was a rising figure in Judaism. He was like a rising superstar in the Jewish faith. And so at that time, what would have come with that is is finances, money, influence, prestige. I mean, he would have, Paul had it all. He, in one encounter with Jesus Christ, and he threw all that overboard to follow and be a hunted man by the Roman Empire and by the leaders of Judaism he became a wanted man the rest of his life. He knew what it was to have plenty, and he knew what it was to, to, to not have much at all and to be in want, uh, but he made a choice not to be a victim. He said, you know, no matter what they do to me or what happens to me, that is not gonna control my life. I'm gonna look to Jesus to move beyond that and to not let my circumstances, not to be a victim of my circumstance, what is done to me or what people say about me and what happens to me. Three types of circumstances. First of all, those we can control and we do. And secondly, those we can control and we don't. And here's where we need to be honest with ourselves. A lot of things we think are out of our control, they really are under our control. For example, the typical thing that we all say as Southern Californians, I've said it a thousand times myself, is we're all so busy, right? That's the mantra of Southern Californians. And don't get me wrong, I think we are, and I think just normal life has tremendous demands on it. But sometimes we got to be honest with ourselves and say, you know what? Is some of this a choice of mine? Own up to it. And is the reason I say I can't do certain things that will have an impact for eternity, uh, is that really out of my control, or do I have a control over that? I I found in my life that I can do the things I really want to do. I can find time for the things I really want to find time for. I can find money for the things I really want to spend on. And and, and so sometimes we have things that we can control, but we don't. And then thirdly, things that we can't, those we can't control. And there's where we need acceptance, where we just say, God, I accept this thing. Okay? I can't control it. That's true in relationships. It takes two people to make a relationship work. And so Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 18, if it is possible as far as it depends on you. As far as it's under your control, live at peace with everyone, but accept the fact that not everything is under our control. And then number three, learn to draw on Christ's power. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Strength is from the Greek word dynamos, which means from which we get our word dynamite from God's dynamite, from his strength. Now, this is often, as you'll see in your study guide this week, uh, where Dr. Tony uh, kind of uh, explains this. I think it was really good. This is probably one of the most misapplied verses uh, that we misapply. Now, don't get me wrong. I think in some ways, yes, God does help you do incredible things that you didn't think were possible. But in its context, the primary application of this means I can learn to be content regardless of my circumstances, through Christ who gives me the dynamis, the, the dynamos, the, the strength. I can, with his dynamo, with his dynamite, with his strength, I can learn the ability to be content, regardless uh, of my circumstances that I'm going through. Uh, Homer Kent has written uh, about Stoic philosophy. And I think it's very similar to kind of secular philosophy in American culture today. I think the Greco-Roman world of the first century A.D. is very similar to our American culture. Uh, The milieu that that, that we live in today is very similar to what the early church operated in 2,000 years ago. And he writes, in Stoic philosophy, atarches, which is translated here content, described a person who accepted impassively whatever came. Circumstances that he could not change were regarded as the will of God and fretting was useless. This philosophy fostered a self-sufficiency in which all the resources for coping with life were located within man himself. Does that sound familiar? I am master of my own universe. I, I am in control. I, I have what it takes to survive. I, I have what it takes to to do what I need to do in life. And the same kind of stoic philosophy of the Greco-Roman world in the first century is the same kind of secular philosophy that we're dealing with here in our culture as well. But in contrast, Paul locates his sufficiency in Christ who provides strength for believers. It is not in our own strength. It is in Christ supernaturally that we can find unexpected joy in unexpected places, in unexpected circumstances. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now the same Greek word translated here in 2 Corinthians sufficient is the one that's translated content in Philippians 4, verse 13. For my power is made perfect in weakness, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power, the same Greek word that is here translated power is the same Greek word that is translated as strength in Philippians, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And then number four, learn to trust God to meet my needs. So let's finish up with the book of Philippians now, starting with verse 14 of chapter four. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know In the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. The church at Philippi was known for their generosity. And I believe Purpose Church is known for its generosity. It's known for its generosity. The kind of generosity that that enables us to literally share the gospel this week with Hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions. Uh, You're known for your generosity. I praise God for your generosity. And the church at Philippi was was known. They had a reputation for generous people transforming the world. Verse 16 For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Now, this sounds crass, but Paul's saying it, it's in the Bible. And that is, every time you give to God's work, it is being credited to your account in heaven. You know how we talk about give 10% and save 10% and live on 80%? Well, what you're doing is you're saving 10% for the latter part of your life, for for the later years, but then you're investing 10% in eternity. And it's being credited, anything you give to the Lord's work, Paul says, is being credited to your account in heaven for eternity, verse 18. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. You know, this is something we, we forget sometimes. But whenever, if we're here Sunday and we put the offering in the offering plate, or if we do it online or through Pushpay or any other way, whenever that happens, we need to remember this is an act of worship to God. This is a wonderful thing. It is, it is when we give to the Lord's work, it is a fragrant offering. It is an acceptable sacrifice. It is pleasing to God. Verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs. The context tells us that the church at Philippi was so generous that it put their own needs at jeopardy. They were in jeopardy of not having their own needs met because they were so generous to the Lord's work and giving to the cause of Christ. But Paul promises them that when you take that risk, my God will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. And all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's Household. Anybody want to guess what Greek word is translated here as household? I'll give you a hint. It's our favorite. Oikos. There were followers of Christ in Caesar's household, whether literally the Caesar, Nero, or some of the imperial leadership. There were followers of Christ in his oikos, and their assignment was to go to heaven And take their oikos with them, and this has been God's assignment, his his strategy for two thousand years, is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food, one beggar telling another beggar if you come to the Fairplex or you come to one of the four services over the weekend next weekend, you will find food there, and I promise you, if you get them there, we will share Christ with them, we will preach Christ, we will share Christ in our music. In our worship, this week, this is our strategy. Reach our oikos, our whole household. Bring them to one of the Easter services and we will share Christ with them. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. As the praise band comes up for closing worship, I wanna close and this one I really mean at this time is my favorite video clip. This, this one is my favorite and, and, and it's true. And I'll tell you why it is my favorite. And you've seen it before. If, you know, if, you, if you've come within the last year or two, maybe you haven't seen it before, but if you've been here more than a couple of years, you've probably seen it. And I love it. I love it because it really summarizes our outreach strategy as a church. If you want to know the heartbeat of, of Purpose Church, this is our strategy. This, in a three-minute video clip, is our strategy for changing our world for Christ. It's our strategy for the next seven days leading up to Easter weekend. So let's watch this and then close with some worship.